we are going to talk about going. So one of the things that you can do, we want you to do, is go to the website and sign up. You just go there and you can, there'll be a place for you to sign up that you want to be part of this. We're going to talk a lot about it. Mark's going to give you even more details next week. He's out at Arlington enlightening them this morning. They take a lot of enlightening, so he's going to be out there with them. They've been disenlightened for 12 years. I don't know who that guy is, but Marcus is out there re-enlightening them this morning. I was talking to a guy yesterday that wanted me to sign a reference letter for him, and I only charge 100 bucks to do that, so I thought it was a pretty good deal. So I said, come by the house, and we'll sit down, and, and I'll fill it out. And he's applying for some uh, further education, like uh, seminary-type stuff. So he came by the house, and I'm filling it out. And he gets to the point, says, how long have you known the applicant? And I looked at him, and I said, man, how long have I known you? And he goes, I was here the first Sunday when you opened the church. I said, okay, 12 years ago. I know uh, how long I've known you now. But we are excited about this Go campaign. And you're going to hear Marcus talk about it. You're going to hear me talk about it. You're going to hear other people sharing. And if nothing else, the one thing that excites me as pastor the most for over both campuses is it will get us praying for our communities. I walk every night in my subdivision in, out in Arlington, and I walk about a mile every night, and there's a lot of streets, and I've already started doing that. And one of the things we'll talk about in September as we go and, and as we pray. And, and I know there are a number of people that live there that I know. And I'm walking down the street the other day. It's kind of like God, God said, let me show you how cool this is. So I'm just walking my... I, a lot of times you get the same route, but I was going a little different route. And I hear this voice. Wasn't God, just relax. <laughs> They're like, I knew it, he's crossed over. But I hear this voice say, Pastor Randy, Pastor Randy. And I turn around, there's this little eight, nine-year-old boy running at me. I had no idea who the boy is. But I think I had met him last Sunday at our um, where the uh, parents of our learning center, Sunshine Learning Center, the parents of the church served, or the people of the church served the parents of the learning center while they had their parent meeting. We fed them, and, and we took care of the kids. So I think that's where I met him. Where I saw him in, in the building. Anyway, he comes running, up, Pastor Randy, Pastor Randy. And he's with a friend of his. And they've got this beautiful little puppy, little husky, beautiful dog. I love dogs. And they had this beautiful puppy. And he said, how you doing, Pastor Randy? And I, and I said, man, do you live here? He goes, no, I, I live down there at the corner by the stop sign. And I said, all right. And I said, is this your puppy? He said, no, it's my friend's. So I said, all right, tell your mom. I said, hello. He said, I'm going to tell her I saw you. So I'm walking. I walk down to the end, turn around. I'm coming back. And I'm, I get past. I'm headed toward my house. And I hear, Pastor Randy, Pastor Randy. And he said, can you catch the dog? And I look down, and that little puppy is running my direction. Again, I, I had two dogs growing up, and Mary and I have been married 45 years next week. And so when we got married, my wife is not an animal person. And so I had to make a decision, Mary or a dog. I, I prayed, I prayed, I struggled, I hurt, I agonized, but finally I chose Mary. Sometime, no, I'm sitting. So anyway, I get down on the street, and I said, you know how you call a dog? Come here, boy. 
come here, come here. And the dog runs right through me, jumps up in my lap, and I said, all right, I'm, Mary's out. I got to have a dog. <laughs> but the two little boys come running over to me, and I give them the dog back. And you know, I met somebody else in my neighborhood, met two little boys. Now, the one boy who knows me will go home and tell his mom, Pastor Randy caught the dog for us. Now, we think, well, that's just stupid. It didn't mean anything. No, she'll remember he was kind to my son. He didn't have to be, but he was. Now, if nothing else, we need to understand as believers in Jesus Christ, you look around your neighborhood, there are a lot of people who aren't even going to church. And a lot of people who had a long conversation with a lady this week about the hypocrisy in the church. You know what? She's right. The people she knew who went to church but during the week didn't live like Jesus. You know any of those people? Ever been one of those people? Yeah. And I told her, I said, you're right. They're hypocrites in the church. And you're right. But guess who isn't? Jesus isn't. Until you follow him. And you find a body that will love you. And she desperately needed that. And we talked about why you need church. And so if nothing else, and again, we're going to be talking a lot about it. If nothing else, it will excite us as a church about what we have to share. The good news of who Jesus Christ is. That we have two campuses where we know people can go and hear the truth of the word of God. We know they can be loved. We know they can be served. We know they can find something that will set them free forever in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pray for them for the whole month of September. We're going to walk our neighborhoods and pray. It may not be your neighborhood. It may walk another neighborhood. Just you walk and you pray. How many of you have the capacity to pray? If your hand's not up, see me afterwards. Because somebody asked in our, in our meeting, we first began to discuss this somewhat. I won't, I won't embarrass him, but one of our elders said, well, what about those of us that can't walk? He said, can we, can we drive the neighborhoods? He said, Absolutely. And there are others who can't even do that, but they certainly pray, right? And so it gets us praying, and God tells us in his word that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. And we're all praying, and every one of us has the capacity to pray. Even if you can't walk your neighborhood or drive your neighborhood, you can pray for your neighborhood and for other neighborhoods and for God to use it. And then in October, when we go back, and we walk them again and then engage them. One of the things you'll be praying for in September is the boldness to engage people. Some people like me can engage a chair. I love to talk. You may have picked up on that. I love people. I love to talk. I have no problem going up and knocking on somebody's door and saying, hold on, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. Just relax. I love to meet people. I love to talk to them. I love to listen, even though that's one of my weaknesses. Sometimes I interrupt and don't listen like I should. And, but I want to hear where they're coming from. I want to know where they are. I want to know what's going on in their lives. Because what do I have to share with them that will set them free forever? The truth. Truth shall set you free. And the truth set you free, you are free indeed. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I know the truth. You know it. You've been set free as a believer. And so we can be excited about that. And you pray for the boldness to do that. But again, the praying part. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. I kind of share what we're going to do today. As we think about 
going. And one other thing I do want to mention to you, just kind of a, you'll see a note in the bulletin that we're going to start the precept Bible study signups next week. We're going to be studying Hebrews part two. You didn't have to take Hebrews part one to take Hebrews part two. We do it here on Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights we're going to work into something new we're going to be doing in Arlington. If you're interested in, because in, I have to order the books, so we're going to start that little sign-ups next Sunday. But if you're interested, you think you want to take that precept course with me on Sunday nights right here, uh, Jimmy Lukaszewski and I will both be out in the lobby. I have to just come up to one of us and say, put my name down. You don't have to give up money today. Just leave your credit card with Jimmy, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> If, you, if, if you're one of those people who don't have credit cards, just your wallet will suffice. It's, it's good. We'll take care of it. But if, you th if it's something that you're interested in, let uh, Jimmy or myself know. You can always contact me during the week. All right. As you get to Acts chapter 6, what I'm not going to do, I want you to look at your handout. Everybody, everybody, if you have a handout with a sermon on it, the notes, hold it up. Okay, I want you to look at it and go, ain't no way he's doing that. You'll be surprised what we're going to accomplish there. I am not going to go back and re-exegete about Abraham, Moses, and Joseph because Marcus has already done that. And even though I could do it much better, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Marcus ain't here, is he? He's supposed to be in Arlington and enlightening them. So we'll assume that's what he's doing, right? I'm not going to go back and re-exegete the gospel according to Abraham. That's a magnificent way to approach it. What I'm going to do today is... As we look at going as a church, I want us to look at Stephen as the example of how to go. And pardon the pun, how he left the planet was pretty cool. How he goed off the planet. That's a new word. You might want to write that down, but most people don't use that word. Goed is a verb, not G-O-A-D, but G-O-E-D. How he goed was pretty good. So we're going to look at who he was, how he got to the point as a young man, that God had him martyred for the cause of Christ because here we are 2,000 years later and the example of how a person dies still impacts our lives. We look at the example of Stephen. So when you get to Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, it's a transition time for the church, this new thing, this church age that's begun at Pentecost, Jesus' body, the, the gospel, the church age. We're still in it today. We'll be in it till Jesus comes back. So it's transitioning from Peter is the leader of the church at Jerusalem. That's where it's been, Acts 1 through 6, 7. The church is at Jerusalem. It's going to transition from Peter as its leader at Jerusalem to going out, Jesus said, the Great Commission is as you go. Well, they haven't gone yet. They've been at Jerusalem. They're about to go. And so it's going to transition from Peter as the leader to the Apostle Paul as the leader. It's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. What Jesus told them to do is about to occur. And it's going to go from simply a Jewish thing exclusively Jewish at Jerusalem to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans, the half-breeds, as the Jews would look at them, and then the Gentiles. It's going to go to all the nations, to all the world. So you've got Peter's ministry, which is magnificent, Paul's, which is going to be incredible. And Paul's not even saved yet when we get to this point. And bridging that gap between Peter 
and Paul, bridging that gap is a brief story for us. Remember, it's always important to remember, the book of Acts is a book of history. We're reading history. So it's not a doctrinal thesis, even though it is. it has a lot of doctrine in it, obviously, for us to learn. It's not a, a book of poetry or wisdom. It's historical. It's a book of history. God is showing us history, the history of the early church, and what we need to do as the church of Jesus Christ in our moment in history. So bridging that gap from Peter's time to Paul's time is the brief, and I mean brief, ministry of a young man named Stephen. And and, and so here's one of my points of encouragement for you today as we look at this. Stephen's life was snuffed out at a young age. He was murdered, stoned to death. Brief, brief ministry, but incredibly important, incredibly effective, incredibly used by God. And I want to encourage you to understand this. Don't ever think that I'm not a Paul, I'm not a Peter, I'm not a Marcus, I'm not a Brother John, I'm just me. No, no, you're important. As we talk about this Go campaign, it's the prayer life of every single one of us corporately together that God's going to bless as we go to pray, as we go to share to see what God's going to do. You're important. Stephen's ministry was vital and important to the early church, and I want us to see that, how a person should go. One of the things you will note as you see this is Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You read his, his resume over there in Philippians, just he couldn't, you couldn't have been any higher on the Jewish ladder than Saul of Tarsus was. And this moment in time, as Stephen is murdered, there's some verses that just will run for the rest of the book of Acts. And even looking back, I get goosebumps thinking about it. As they're stoning Stephen to death, they hand their clothes to whom? Saul of Tarsus, who was, quote, consenting unto his death. In other words, he was all in it. He was one of the ones that was for it. He was one of the leaders. We know what he did for a living. He persecuted followers of Jesus. He's there. He's on the, you can't be any more in the middle of it than he was. He's holding the clothes. This moment, he never forgot. Saul of Tarsus remembered this for the rest of his life. You get over toward the end of the book of Acts, and Paul is defending himself before one of the Roman governors. And here's what he says. I was standing there consenting unto Stephen's death. He never forgot it. Can you imagine when Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus? You remember the story, how he's miraculously saved by that blinding light. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? So poignant but so important. What did, what did Jesus say to Saul of Tarsus when he blinded him? He was about to save him. He's going to make him the apostle to the Gentiles. 
What did he say to Saul of Tarsus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You think Saul thought about this moment? I guarantee you he did. What Jesus was saying to him was, when you had Stephen murdered, you were persecuting me. And that's why Jesus said to his followers, don't be surprised. There's going to come a time when they throw you out of the synagogue. They were all Jewish that he was talking to at that moment. They're going to kick you out, going to excommunicate you. They're going to imprison you, even try to kill you. And they're going to say they've done a good thing. Don't be surprised, Jesus said. The world will hate you. Why? Because it hated me. So the principle for us, don't be surprised as a believer if you live out your faith that you're persecuted. Paul said it's an honor. Peter later would talk about it. A privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Not to reap what I've sown, but to suffer as a believer. So bridging the gap, this brief ministry of Stephen. You see, Satan has tried to stomp out this witness of this thing called the church. He's tried persecution from without, the Sanhedrin. He's tried persecution from within, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, he's going to try murder. You know what the result every time is? I love the book of Acts. Every time, Satan does his best to sniff out, excuse me, snuff out the witness of the church. He tries his best. Sanhedrin ought to be able to get it done. Nope. Okay, I'll go inside. Ananias and Sapphira, they were leaders. They, they were teachers. I'll get it. No, that didn't work. What happened? Every single time, the church exploded in growth because they were unified, they were focused, and they were not going to let anything rip them apart. They were going to share the gospel. And if they took their lives, they took their lives. That's what we need as the church. We need to understand what unity really is. It's not, it's not uniformity. No, we're different. We're not going to agree on every little thing. We're not going to let those things separate us. We're going to stay focused. So let's look at Stephen. Let's start out in chapter 6, just briefly, with Stephen's debate. Stephen's debate. Look at verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some foreigners called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Basically what this means is they're debating with him. It is a very, very much a formal. So you've got all of these high-class, learned experts in the law that are debating with Stephen, this man full of faith, follower of Jesus Christ. And I love verse 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, Stephen was just one guy. Some experts say there were hundreds of these. We don't know how many. There were a lot of them. One of them was Saul of Tarsus. They were all experts in the law. And they came to debate him, assuming what? Number one, because of our numbers. Number two, because of our incredible smarts. We're going to do what? We're going to embarrass this kid. We're going to stop this. We're going to win this debate. And he's going to be embarrassed. See the verse again. Please don't miss this. You're important. All of these guys come from the different synagogue to debating. Verse 10, they were not able 
to resist his wisdom and his spirit. Wisdom means his perspective, looking at things the way God looks at them. But I really want you to notice the word spirit, because in your Bible, it's probably capitalized, am I right? It should not be. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit, even though it is the Holy Spirit that's in him. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is they were not able to resist his passion, what he was sharing. His fervor, his excitement. You ever feel that way about Jesus? You should. My wife and I joke about it all the time. I met Mary, I was 16 years old, in early 1970. And I got saved in April, on April 19th, 1970. 16 years old, dumb as a brick. About women, about spiritual things. I just knew I need this. And I've been in church my whole life. No one ever told me to share the gospel with me. And I accepted Christ. Well, I've always had this personality that I have now. I don't mind talking to anybody about anything. I love to talk. I think I mentioned that earlier. So we went on a youth trip to Panama City Beach, Florida, because that's what churches did. First time I'd ever seen the ocean. I mean, it, it was cool for me. We went to this place called Shipwreck Island. And we're just hanging around at Shipwreck Island doing, you know, doing what you do on church trips. Kids, you know, playing, having a good time. And I'm going up to total strangers. Not kids my age, but adults. And talking to them. About what? Hey, I, let me, can, do you know Jesus? Are you saved? Because I was excited about what had happened in my life. And I, and I wanted them to know. And my wife to this day, I think I shared this with you guys last time I was here. To this day, if you ask my wife, again, we've been married 45 years, next week. If you ask her, what's the first thing that attracted you to Randy? And it certainly wasn't my physique. At 5'10", 125 pounds, I was all man in high school. He said, she said it was how much he loved Jesus, and she'd been in church her whole life, and he could talk to people about it, and I couldn't. And that's my wife's very shy. She's the exact opposite of me. I'm as extroverted as you can be, and she's as introverted as you can be. She loves Jesus. And she hurts. But she's not crazy enough to go up and talk to a total stranger like I am. God gave me the boldness to do it. I want you to notice they could not resist Stephen. So what do they do? They're not going to win the debate, so what do they do? They change their tactics. Look at verse 11. They just decide we'll arrest him. Verse 11. They secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. They can't win the debate, so they change the tactics. They hire people to lie about Stephen. Who does this sound like? Reminiscent of Jesus Christ. Exact same thing. Some of the exact same people are on this council, the Sanhedrin. So they, had, they lie. They, hire, they pay people to lie. They have him arrested. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. Now look at the accusation against him. Verse 13. They set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place that would be the temple and the law. Moses, the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Just flat out changing, twisting, and lying about the words of both Stephen and Jesus. Verse 15, 
All who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So they accuse him. This is important going forward. We're not going to go back and go over all this because Marcus has done it. They accuse him of blasphemy, specifically concerning God, the temple, and Moses. So I love Acts chapter 7. Here's Stephen's defense. Being accused of blasphemy of God, Moses, the law, the temple, all things that were obviously big deal, a big deal to the Jews and especially to the Sanhedrin. Here's his defense in Acts chapter 7. This is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. He's going to refute the, the blasphemy. He's going to review their history for them. We're not going to go over all that. And he's going to point out their own sin, their own blasphemy. So his first point to them is you've forgotten your deliverers. First being Abraham. Look at verse 8. Now he's defending himself before the Sanhedrin. God gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs, his sons. He said, you've forgotten all about Abraham, but who he was, the father of our faith, the father of our nation. You say you revere Abraham, but in reality, you blaspheme Abraham because Abraham trusted God. You trust in your self-righteousness and your religion. Jesus Christ said these words. Your father Abraham rejoiced, speaking to these Jews, probably many of whom were right here, the same group that's with Stephen, heard Jesus say these words. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The God who spoke to Abraham was me. I am the God who spoke to Moses on the burning bush and told him his name was. I am. That was me. This will have, as we mentioned earlier, this is going to have an incredible effect. What happens here historically with Stephen is going to have an incredible impact and effect on Saul of Tarsus, who later would write these words in Romans chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. Paul wrote these words. Saul of Tarsus, who would become the apostle Paul, wrote these words. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself, Paul, were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, my fellow Jews, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the Shekinah glory, all of that entails, the covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, on and on, the giving of the law, the service of God, the Levitical priesthood, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. God brought the Messiah through my people. He's over all the eternally blessed God. Saul of Tarsus, a Jew 
of Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Christ saved him, said, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he loved his Jewish brethren and wanted them to understand what it really meant. See, they had forgotten it. He wanted them to see it. You read over there in Philippians, and that's why it's probably my favorite book in the Bible in that passage where he lists his resume. Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, on and on. When it came, he was a Pharisee. When it came to the law, blameless. In their mind, these guys sitting on the Sanhedrin were self-righteous. They did not sin when it came to the law. They were blameless in their own self-righteousness. And Paul lists all of that. And maybe one of my favorite two or three verses in all the Bible, he then says, I looked at that. And next to knowing Jesus, it was a pile of manure is the word that he used. You could take it from there. Paul said, I thought I had it all. As a self-righteous Jew, I did have it all in my mind. And then I looked at my fellowship with Jesus after my salvation, and I realized what I had was a pile of manure because I was worshiping myself, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, myself. Think about people you know today, even people in church. I've shared this a lot in a lot of different venues and with individuals. If you ask them today, are you going to heaven if you drop dead, their answer is going to be almost exclusively, their answer is going to be what? I hope so. I hope so. What are they hoping in? Themselves, their righteousness. Maybe I've done enough. Before I got saved at age 16, if you'd asked me that question, that's what I would have said. After I got saved and I began to grow and I began to learn, and you ask me now, if, I, if I'm counting on Randy, I'm in some deep stuff. Randy ain't saving anybody. Randy can't be good enough. That's the beauty of understanding who Jesus is and what he did. Abraham got it. The Bible says in Genesis 12, it's a long time before the law, a long time before Moses. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was imputed or charged to his account as righteousness. He was saved the exact same way you were. I was on April 19th, 1970, when I trusted Jesus Christ, what he, his work he did on the cross, I trusted that to redeem me, not my good works, not my good looks. Well, I knew I ain't getting in on that. We have our four-year-old granddaughters with us this weekend, and she was drawing a picture this morning early, and I'm getting ready to leave, and I went over and I said, who are you drawing a picture of? She told me, some Ariel or somebody, I don't know. There are many princesses. She's drawing a picture of one of them. And which one? One's the mermaid. She's drawing that. I said, well, you know, if you put a, a big nose on there, it could be Grandy. She goes, Grandy, I don't want to draw a picture of you, and I sure don't want that nose. <laughs> four, four years old. So I went over to, to kiss Mary goodbye, and she's like right there. And I kiss her goodbye, and uh, Lydia says, Grandy? Do you kiss Grammy goodbye? 
every time you go to church? I said, well, I kiss her goodbye every day. When I leave or she leaves, and she looks right at me and says, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I said, well, you may be right, but we got to do what we got to do. <laughs> All right, number one, you've forgotten Abraham. Stephen says, number two, you've forgotten Joseph. Look at verse 9. The patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, Israel, the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and he delivered him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. I just want to make one point about Joseph. You know the story. You know how bad it was. And he's, he's the only one that's righteous in the story, and yet who's the one that suffers? It's Joseph over and over and over again. He's, he's just trying to do what's right. Don't you, let's be honest. Don't you think you might reach a point, I know I would, where you'd say, hey, God, what's up? All I'm trying to do is what's right, and I'm the one that ends up in the stuff all the time. Why? You don't see that with Joe. It's, it's hard. But at the end of it, you see what God is doing at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, that incredible verse. When his brothers have to come crawling to him to get food and they realize it's their brother and they're thinking what? Let's be, it's exactly what it says. They have to crawl to their brother who they sold into slavery. They were going to kill him and one of them had a pang of conscience. No, we won't kill him. We'll just sell him. They sell him into slavery and years later there's a famine because God's going to bring them to Joseph and Joseph is the number two man in the world. They got to crawl to their brother to get food and what's going through their mind? Oh, man. We done messed up now. That's Joseph up there. I love the picture because it shows you the grace of God and living it out. Joseph hugs them, welcomes them. It says that incredible verse in Genesis 50. What is it? You know it as well as I do. You meant it for evil, but God, but God. Don't ever miss that. That's why it's my favorite word in the Bible, but. But God meant it for good. He's always at work in the good, in the bad, in the ugly, Clint Eastwood, whatever it might be. He's always at work. We, know, we may not see a lot of it. We will not see till eternity. Does that mean he's not at work? No. He's always at work. And then you forgot Moses, verse 32. You forgot Abraham. You forgot Joseph. You also forgot Moses, verse 32. Saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses trembled and he dared not look. Verse 36. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs God did in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up from you for you a prophet like me. From your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, please don't miss this statement because it's a story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament history. In their hearts, they did what? Turn back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into bondage. That's what Egypt always represents in Scripture. 
They turned their back on God. We want to go back to Egypt. We do not know what has become of this saying, verse 40, saying to Aaron, make us gods, plural, not the one true God who delivered us. Make us gods, plural, to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses was on the mountain with God getting the law, and there at the foot of the mountain building a golden calf to take them back to bondage and asking Aaron the priest to do it for them. They can't even wait 40 days on the God who had done miraculously more than they could ever hope or ask for to deliver them. So what Stephen is saying is, you forgot Abraham. You forgot Joseph. You forgot, you're accusing me of blaspheming Moses, and you, you have totally forgotten who Moses was. Jesus said these words, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote about me. If you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? We just saw where Moses wrote this prophet is going to be, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. If you're not going to follow me, you're not believing Moses, God's law to you. Stephen's second point in his defense about being charged of blasphemy is they had forgotten their history, their idolatry. Look at verse 41. They made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices, this is the time of Moses, to the idol, and they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Please note that phrase. They rejoiced in what? The God who had delivered them from Egypt? What did they rejoice in? Look at what we did, we've done. Look at the calf we've built. Look at the idol we've made. They rejoiced in that, the works of their own hands. Then God turned and he gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? Oh, house of Israel, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your God, Rimphim, images which you made in worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Their idolatry. I'm going to go into great detail, just a couple of points. While pretending, God says to Israel, while pretending to worship me, while pretending to be my children, while pretending the facade and the mask the hypocritical mask of being a God follower, you were making idols. You took up just a couple of examples that he lists here. You took up Moloch, some places that spell Molech, same thing, M-O-L-O-C-H. This is one of the pagan gods got so bad, they were worshiping him in the temple, Solomon's temple. You know how you worship Moloch? You took an infant child and you laid him on an altar while he was alive and you burned him to death. That's how you worshiped Moloch. The children of Israel chose that over God. That's one example. You took your God, here he mentions Rimphim. You know how you worship Rimphim? You brought prostitutes into the temple and you had sex with them at the altar. That's how you worship Rimphim. 
They chose him over God. And it says the images you made to worship, you run this through and you look at it, it's talking about you decided you would worship demons, the angels of Satan, instead of God. That's just three examples. You got the bales and the asters on and on and on. God after God after God after God that they chose instead of the one true God. Look at the end of verse 43. What did God say I'm going to do? I will carry you away where? Beyond Babylon. So here's what happened. Israel had 12 tribes. Ten of them were carried away into the Assyrian captivity, and the two remaining went into the Babylonian captivity because they turned their back on God, their idolatry. Next point, the temple, the tabernacle. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as God appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. The tabernacle, the portable worship center prior to the temple, the Holy of Holies, the whole bit. Which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Verse 47. But Solomon built him a house. Solomon built the temple. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet Jeremiah wrote these words. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, another idol, walk after other gods, plural, whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, Solomon's temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, the temple, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Reminiscent. When Jesus went into Herod's temple, which was Solomon's temple, had been destroyed, rebuilt, and it's rubbable, remodeled under Herod, Herod's temple, when Jesus went into the courtyard, what did he call it? You turned it into a what? Den of thieves. It wasn't the place where you met God. That's what tabernacle meant, tent of meeting. You come to meet God. That's not what, what had happened. They had turned it into a profit-making industry and a place they worshiped the building itself and not the God they were coming there to meet. And God said, I'm not going to turn my house into a den of thieves. I don't want anything to do with it. So finally, Stephen says, in the moment, verse 51, you murdered your Messiah. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised, verse 51, in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. We just talked about. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, the Messiah, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their 
teeth. You're rebellious, you refuse to listen to God, and you're rejecting the Messiah. Matter of fact, you murdered him. And you accuse me of blasphemy? That's the point of his defense. Now, here's what I want you to see. Look at his death. Chapter 7, verse 54 again. He's hated by these people. They heard these things. They were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. That about as angry and vile a hatred as you could have toward another human being that you just want to go over and rip the heart out of their chest. That's the picture. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. They've just become a murderous mob at this point. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus who will become the apostle Paul. By the way, as Jews under the uh, Rome's rule, what they're doing here is illegal. They, had, they could not kill anyone. That's why they had to have Rome crucify Jesus for them. But they're so mur- the murderous intent in their heart is so profane at this point, they hate Stephen so much, they just forget, they lose their senses, senses and they stone him to death, hated by them. But notice this, verse 55, He's honored by his God. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I was sharing briefly this part last week in Arlington. I just want to hit for a second. It's so beautiful. He's the first martyr of the church, historical moment, first martyr of the the church that's recorded for us. And as he's dying, full of the Holy Spirit, how do we go? Full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes. He's not looking around him. Who's he looking at? He's looking at his God. He gets to see the glory of God. The only other one that came close to this was Moses. What does he also see? It's so beautiful. Like the way I like to put it is he got a standing ovation from Jesus. He's standing at, it says the son of man, which by the way, don't miss that. Son of man was a direct reference to Daniel, title for the Messiah. Who is it that's stoning him to death? Jewish leaders who knew who the son of man was. Stephen says, I see the son of man, the one you're killing me for. I see him. He's standing up at the right hand of God. Two quick things. The right hand of God means the highest place of honor, power, majesty, and authority in the universe. King of kings, Lord of lords, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord through the glory of God the Father. And the reason the standing is important, Hebrews tells us, when Jesus finished his high priestly work, his work on the cross, he did what? Sat down because the work was finished. It didn't have to happen anymore. Nobody else had to go into the Holy of Holies anymore. He, he did it. He finished the work. It is finished. Why is he standing up? This is my opinion, so throw it out on your way home. The reason he's standing up, in my opinion, is to say to Stephen, 
well done. I love you. Thank you. Well done. I believe that's what Jesus was doing. And I believe all the angels in heaven were rejoicing. But Jesus stood up to welcome this guy. Brief, brief life, right? Incredibly effective. Message to the church. Got Saul of Tarsus' attention. He just, he didn't know, no one knew what Saul of Tarsus would become. So then you see the plan of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, and we're done. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The church was finally scattered to take the gospel to the whole world. Persecution led to the scattering for the gospel to go to Europe, Africa, and every place where our ancestors came from. And this is the precursor to the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. St. Augustine said this about Stephen. If Stephen had not prayed, the church would have not had Paul. We're going to go pray for our communities. I'm already, when I walk my neighborhoods at night, I'm praying. You can do the same. I'm going to share a true story with you, and then we're going to close out our time together. This is a true story. In A.D. 320, so 300 years after Christ, 320, the emperor of Rome, Licinius, put out an edict. And he said all soldiers, all Roman soldiers, had to swear their allegiance to the pagan gods of Rome. The famed 12th legion of Rome, this imperial army, was serving in a place called Savaste, which is in modern-day Turkey. Get you geographical picture. Forty members of that legion refused to bow down to the emperor's order because they were Christians. So the governor of that area summoned them together and ordered them to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods, and they refused, saying, quote, we will not sacrifice. To do so is to betray our holy faith. And the governor said, what about all your friends in the legion? All of them are bowing to our gods Do you want to disgrace them? How can you do this to your fellow soldiers? Here was their answer. To disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. So the governor said, you have no Lord but Caesar. In his name, I promise promotion to the first of you who steps forward and does his duty. Not one of the 40 stepped forward. So... The governor said, all right, you persist in your rebellion. I will torture, imprison, and ultimately kill you. This is your last chance. And they said, nothing you can offer us will replace what we would lose. As for your threats, we've learned to deny our bodies where the welfare of our souls is at stake. So over the next several days, these men were taken out one at a time. They were flogged. They were put in a dungeon. Finally, he took all 40 of them out onto a frozen lake stripped them of their clothes and said, you will stay here. Either die or come to the shore and renounce Christ. Your choice. So on the night air, you could hear the 40 praying this. Lord, there are 40 of us engaged in this battle. 
Grant that 40 may be crowned and not one be missing from this sacred number. So one by one, as the temperature got colder and colder and colder, they died. Finally, there was one of them left. He crawled to shore and renounced Christ. So now there were 39. And they looked up, and one of the captain of the guard strips his clothes off. And he crawls out to the middle of the ice and says, I want to follow Jesus too. What got his attention? That these 40 men would die for their faith. It meant that much to them. And he was born again. And he too died on the ice. But he replaced the one, didn't he? Don't ever think you're not important. All they did was say, we, we love Jesus. And it worked. You pray, you go. You bow your heads, please. Father, as we close out our time together, we just simply thank you for the example of Stephen. Even to this day, it resonates with us. It has meaning. We learn how you go. He died asking you, God, to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. Asking you, God, to receive his spirit. What a testimony. Just like Jesus died, he died. He went just like Jesus did. Lord, I pray that for us, all of us who are believers, that Christ church is our home that we simply would go as Stephen went. Share our faith, live our faith, die in our faith, honoring Jesus. So, Lord, for those of us who are born again, you convict us to go like Stephen. If there's somebody here who's not a Christian, they would be like that lone soldier, say, I need Jesus. Crawl out on that ice, say, Lord, save me. I want to follow Christ. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, I need to pray with you. I'll be down front.